Thanks for that introduction. It's always a joy to be with you all here and uh, bringing God's word. And especially in the Christmas season, it feels like a special honor and privilege to be here. So the saints at Delray Baptist Church welcome you and we welcome you in our family. And, and I'm, I'm thankful and grateful to be here. Would you uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40? And as you do that, before we get started, let's pray and ask the Lord's help for both the proclaiming and the receiving of his word. Father, we we come to your word this morning, and we come to, for many of us, a quite familiar passage associated with this glorious Christmas season where we get to celebrate the the first coming, Jesus coming as a baby, and then uh, doing the work of living the perfect life and dying the death that we deserve, and then raising from the dead. We, we celebrate that, but as we come to a familiar passage of Scripture, I pray that you would banish all sentimentality that's associated perhaps with this passage and give us fresh insights from your word that would encourage our hearts, convict us of sin, and cause us to turn to you in repentance and faith. So build us up and strengthen us. Help us by the power of your spirit both to proclaim and to receive your word and what you have for us and i pray that you would be honored and glorified in it i pray in jesus name amen so my big question for you today is are you in need of comfort this morning is there any area of your life where you you can imagine you you certainly need a bit of comfort or consolation That's what I want you to imagine as we start here. Think of an area of your life thirsting for consolation where you really could use a word of hope or strengthened faith or a promise to grasp in whatever crucible of suffering you might be facing. If things are going well for you, if you're in a season of prosperity, I pray that today's meditation would be preparatory for you, for The Lord Jesus promised that we would suffer. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is engaging with the Lord's promises in suffering and and seeing how he might strengthen and encourage our faith. My goal today, this morning, is to uncover as many promises in this passage of Scripture that we can so that we might all leave encouraged. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, my question to you or my challenge for you this morning is to consider where you find hope where do you find comfort when you suffer i'd like you to consider that pastor joel emailed me said we're lighting the faith candle today so can you preach something related to faith so i'm going to start with where you guys have heard quite uh recently hebrews chapter 11 1 The Bible's definition of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But where where do we find assurance for our hope? How How do we become convinced of things not seen? This definition of faith invites us to look both back at evidence of what God has already accomplished, that's the assurance of things hoped for, And it also urges us to look forward 
in faith to what God will do in the future. That's the conviction or the proof of things not yet seen. With those two invitations in mind, looking back and looking forward, let's now turn to our text for today. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So our passage today meets the people of God in a similar circumstance to where we started. What you might be feeling this morning in a bit of, or at least soon to be, suffering... Life certainly offers plenty of occasions where we need a promise to grasp or a word that will point us to something hopeful or something true, something certain. So my prayer for all of us this morning is that we find a promise or two in this familiar passage that will strengthen us wherever we are in the midst of whatever we are suffering. So whatever struggle with sin or whatever temptation or whatever doubt we might be facing right now, May God's Word equip us and empower us and strengthen us to persevere in the fight of faith. That's our, that's our goal for today. So our big takeaway, our overarching theme from today's passage is be comforted and strengthened by faith in God's promises fulfilled and His promises yet to come. Be comforted and strengthened by faith in God's promises fulfilled and His promises yet to come. So... In the text, we'll see sort of three sorts of promises, three headings, for lack of a better word, that should fuel us in both dark days and prospering promises, prospering providences. So um, two, two really two points today, and then a little cherry on top at the end. So the the three things, the two two big points are comfort and faith in what God has done, and then comfort and faith in what God will do. And then a little cherry on top at the end, comfort and faith because God has said it. The first first one, comfort and faith in what God has done. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. So the historical background to our text falls within the ministry of God's prophet Isaiah, as the name of the book suggests. God called Isaiah to preach to the southern kingdom, what was formerly united under one nation, the nation of Israel, became split, and so Isaiah's ministry is primarily to the southern kingdom called Judah. You may remember that in the golden years of the kingdom of Israel, uh, Saul reigned for a while, and then Israel's greatest king, David, reigned, and, and then his son Solomon reigned, and then after Solomon, the, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. And in due course, both sides, both parts of the kingdom fell into idolatry 
and spiritual adultery against God. Both sides profaned his covenant. They worshipped foreign false gods. They introduced uh, practices of sexual perversion and other bitter fruits into the, the worship of the one true God. And they profaned his covenant. So as a result, what you see is all of the bad, bitter fruit in society that sort of trickles down from that false worship. You saw um, Isaiah calls out Judah for not upholding justice for those who are vulnerable. And you see that this kind of spiritual adultery just goes on for generation and generation. You see various periods where there might be a good king who tries to revive things a little bit, but then inevitably... A uh, bad king comes along and adultery comes back and, and things like that. So that's where we are sort of in the ministry of Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry particularly addresses the su- southern kingdom for their collective sin and participating in some of those detestable practices that I just mentioned. And while Judah did continue to observe the appointed feasts that God commanded, the appointed things uh, that he asked, they did it largely with cold hearts that had grown far from him. And like, like we said, they oppressed the vulnerable. They failed to uphold justice, and they performed religious rituals in an empty manner. God demands of us a contrite heart, and they did not. They did not. Uh, they did not show that kind of contrite heart. I appreciated uh, my dad's prayer, really ministering to our hearts to be confessing how cold often we experience uh, the Word of God or His promises, and we need the Lord's help, just as the the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, needed the Lord's help from repentance of these things, but. But Isaiah comes to preach to them to try to wake them up from this sort of spiritual slumber. So what's interesting is that God, through the, the book of Isaiah, promises judgment on Judah for all of these sins. And he promises that God will send the pagan nation Babylon to carry Judah away into slavery and exile after just a hundred years from the prophecy that we read in Isaiah 40. So take a look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. And note curiously the tenses of the, of the verbs in the verses. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins? Remember, this is being said about things that haven't even happened yet. God speaks this oracle through the prophet Isaiah about future events as if they've already happened. Note the present tense in how God describes comfort for His people. And the past tense in how He talks about their judgment being over. Their warfare or their forced labor is ended. They have received uh, double for their sins. So the big question is why? 
Why would he speak to people who haven't experienced exile yet as if they already had? I'm going to point out three observations in verses 1 and 2 that I think, I hope, will help us answer the question. Those are, God promises comfort for his people flowing from covenantal love that secures his people's faith. That's observation number one. Observation number two is God promises the world that he will visit wrath upon sin. That's observation number two. And then observation three, God promises tenderness to his people to gird their faith through suffering. So he has a preparatory goal in mind for the people of God in the way that this oracle is written in verses one and two. So first, God promises comfort for his people people flowing from covenantal love that secures their faith. Notice how God promises comfort exclusively to the people that he calls his own. He announces comfort, comfort, my people, and refers to himself as your God. These, pro, these pronouns tell us about an intimately personal relationship between God and His people, even despite their sin. The pronouns evoke notions of permanence and possession and predestination by God's own divine initiative. The kind of love which God announces through this comfort is eternal. It's unbreakable. It's covenantal. The repetition we see in our opening phrase, comfort, comfort, emphasizes the kind of compassion that the Lord feels for His people in the context of relationship already established. We can observe an example of this in the tone of our Lord Jesus as He expresses lament over His chosen city, Jerusalem, in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. God does not extend the promise of comfort coldly or casually or from mere obligation, but He offers comfort to His people from outstretched hands of divine love, from a kind of reciprocal love and fellowship that has always and continues to operate within the persons of the Trinity. It's the kind of love shared between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that He's inviting His people into. God's comfort flows from an even more permanent place than the love shared shared between a a groom and his bride on their wedding day. Like a groom stands willing to publicly, boldly declare his Allegiance to his bride through vows, boldly and enduringly. God stands willingly to bind himself in covenant to his people with that same, even greater boldness, but even with great cost to himself. This is the kind of love that a parent extends to their child, knowing that they have the best good of the child in mind, even at great cost to the parent. And it's even the kind of love that the best of friends displays to their friends by giving their life for their friends, as the Lord Jesus taught. 
God's promise of comfort flows uniquely, exclusively, specifically towards His people with whom He has already established this permanent relationship. This comfort is only available to them. Anyone remaining outside of this covenant lacks access to drink from this same well of grace. As God's people, we can confidently regard our God as maker, our true husband, as we are his bride. The God of all comfort comforts us in any affliction, even through and up to slavery in a foreign land. In exile. He comforts his people because he has already indelibly marked his love upon them as chosen specifically from all others. Like, like a husband reserves special affection for his wife, God yearns jealously for his people's exclusive allegiance. He has loved us first and sets us apart from all other lovers. I want you also to notice the. So I'll skip to page. That's what happens when the ink isn't fully dry when you when you uh, take it off the printer. Excuse me. I want you to notice that comfort from the Lord ministers to His people. You know, with a loving balm to prepare them for and then heal them from injuries sustained through suffering. If you're a Christian, have you ever considered what it means for you that God loves you and sets his affections upon you from eternity past? Beloved, this is the kind of comfort, this promise should comfort us in and of itself. When we truly grasp and truly believe that God is for us and not against us because He marked us out before time began, when we look by faith into the promises that He fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son Jesus, if we truly believe these grand truths, they should increase our confidence in the certainty of God's goodness to us. Even and especially through life's deepest trials. God's word declares that his people's warfare is ended and their iniquity is pardoned. These are all benefits available for the people of God, once called enemies that he now regards as sons. God declares comfort for my people, who he adopts into his family. We stand equivalently his as he is ours. God's covenantal love for his people adopts us into his eternal family and secures our mutual affection by his power and not by ours. So now instead of being enemies, we can delight in him and regard him as Lord and protector and provider, and first love, and friend. Beloved, knowing and being known by God should far outstrip 
any affection that we have for the world. And it should replace any earthly joy with those found in the security of the Lord's embrace. He has worked so well in our hearts to make His beauty so attractive, His love so irresistible, that we can glory in faith towards the one who ministers to our deepest anxieties and our most faith-shaking insecurities. The Lord has met our greatest need. He did so by sending Jesus to secure these promises for His people. Even sending Jesus to death on a cross for us. He who did not spare His Son so that He could purchase us from sin's slavery. Will He not now seek our best good and accomplish His purposes through our suffering and our waiting? Will He not do these things to strengthen our faith? This is the purpose of why God appoints suffering and trials for His people in our lives. Notice the manner and the degree of tenderness that God displays in comfort towards His people. Verse 2 says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, that her warfare is ended. These words represent instructions from God to His prophets and His preachers, dictating how they're meant to relate to the people of God after Babylonian exile. They're meant to relate to God's people and minister to them in tenderness. And the tender tone umbrellas the rest of our passage, all the way from verse 1 through verse 5. Even though God has declared and predicted and He will visit judgment upon Judah, He only relates to them in tenderness once their chastisement is completed. Just as judgment came from the Lord's hand, it says, from the Lord's hand is double for all her sins. Tenderness follows from the Lord. He now marks re-established fellowship between God and His people tenderly. And notice, only after sin's price is paid, may the Lord extend a merciful and tender tone. That's the second observation in these verses. God promises the world that He will visit wrath upon sin. We should understand the word double for all her sins, not referring to the quantity of judgment that Judah will receive, but it means that God will judge Judah up to the mirror image of what their sin deserves. It's sort of how we use the term stunt double in our culture. It's, it's the twin of the actor. So when we, when we read that God will visit uh, judgment double for Judah upon her sins, he's, he's doing the mirror image of what their sins deserve. So, of course, this begs the question, and it serves to warn us, are you reconciled to the God who would exercise infinite wrath equal to infinite offense that sin deserves? I want you to think about exile. This involves people abducted from their homes. They're manacled to chains, forcibly dragged a thousand miles into a hostile land. They bear the shame of nakedness and statelessness 
They have an uncertain future except only to suffer. They're torn from their families. They constantly face the threat of execution. And they have to endure torturous desert elements on the way. These experiences and much more all emanate from the Lord's hand, the text says. How much more then will God visit wrath upon you if you persist in rebellion against Him? If your neck stiffens at the sound of His call? These are the days, presently, right now, where God extends mercy to sinners for repentance instead of a consuming fire for sin. But there will come a day where the Lord's mercy runs out, where His patience and tenderness expire. And on that day, everyone not reconciled to Him by trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death for their pardon, everyone not placing their confidence in Jesus' resurrection from the grave, everyone who never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord will face nothing but fury forever in hell. Instead, the Word today calls you to run to Jesus for mercy. Today, while His arms remain open, today flee for rescue and forgiveness of sin to the One who received the warfare of God for all of us who would trust in Him. If you're not a Christian, you too can taste the tenderness of God by turning from your sins and placing your faith in Christ and having your sins forgiven. God also promises tenderness to His people to gird their faith through suffering. For everyone who is in Christ, everyone who has received the gift of sins forgiven, by His grace, the Lord's tenderness should steady our faith. Jesus tenderly treats us not considering our failures, but as if we lived His perfect life. Jesus cancels our guilt and sympathizes with our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit tenderly applies the comfort of Christ into our hearts. He tenderly equips our faith for victory against temptation, against spiritual warfare. Even through any kind of suffering, the Lord proves himself tender. He remains with us as our Emmanuel, our God with us. That's what we celebrate in this season. God ministers to us tenderly with the presence of the Holy Spirit with us as our seal. He ministers to us tenderly through the promises found in His Word. And He speaks tenderly to us according to the Father's sovereign ordering of our lives. So that even when we experience suffering and trials, the Lord is tenderly using it for our best good. In tenderness, the Holy Spirit whispers a still small voice to beckon our obedience. He reminds us that, he reminds us that we've had hearts purified by the sacrifice of Christ, that we would experience and know God more sweetly in that purity, walking and abiding in Jesus. The Holy Spirit tenderly purifies our consciences. He tenderly speaks peace because our warfare with God has ended. And by faith, the Holy Spirit's tenderness 
enables our deliverance from sin because we're no longer slaves to it. So may we continue to avail ourselves of all of these promises already accomplished. May we look back regularly to what Jesus has done for full assurance of faith. But now let's look ahead for comfort and faith in what God will do. So that's our second big point. Comfort and faith in what God will do. Look with me down again at verses 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make faith in the de- make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So in the ancient world, kings would commonly send a messenger ahead of them to announce the king's imminent arrival. This helps prepare the people hearing it for celebration at his coming, and it extolled the king's glory. I don't know about you, I, when I watched the State of the Union address, um, it, does, it doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter what party they come from. When the sergeant in arms yells out to the Speaker of the House, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States, and then Hail to the Chief, the band plays Hail to the Chief, I get goosebumps. And just because of reverence for the office and the, and the glory of the moment, this is sort of what's in view here of of a voice going to prepare for a way of for the king. So in like manner to that, God announces through his prophets that he, the king, is coming. And so this is what's next for God's people after the Babylonian exile. God foretells the means he will use to comfort his people as he assured them. God's promises invite us, his people, to look ahead in faith. So the language in verse 3 draws the people of Judah to think back to another rescue from slavery and then look forward to a parallel kind of deliverance. Did you catch it in our verses? It says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God promises Judah a new kind of exodus as they escape Babylon. Just as from Egypt, God will make a way in the wilderness. Just as with the prophet Moses, a voice proclaims the glory of God as rescuer and savior. Just as God parted the Red Sea, God promises a highway through the desert where where he will clear all natural obstacles to their entrance into the promised land. Even if a hill or a mountain or a valley or a sea stands in their way, God will rescue them. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. So just as the Exodus declared the glory of God to melt the hearts of the nations occupying Israel's promised land at the time, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. God's Old Testament people during the time of Isaiah are called to look ahead. Past the exile to come. 
and expect how God will faithfully fulfill His promises. This principle should strengthen our faith. We should do the same thing with what's ahead of us. This is what happened following return from Babylon. This is what, I, this is what Isaiah's readers should be thinking as this oracle gets passed down through the generations and people read it and hear God's promises in Isaiah 41 through 5. They should be thinking as they get rescued from Babylon. Okay, God's promises to Abraham of a promised land and offspring and, and blessing will finally come to pass when he returns Judah on his smooth highway in the desert. God's royal decree to David can now be fulfilled, ensuring an everlasting throne with a king who reigns in righteousness and peace forever. God's temple can now be rebuilt. Right right sacrifices can be observed. And scores of worshipers from all nations will stream to the temple and learn learn God's ways. That's Isaiah chapter 2. God's promised Messiah will come as Savior who will do justice for the poor and proclaim freedom for the captives and establish jubilee. And God's covenant of peace will abound with His people forever. Isaiah 54, where God's glory will never fade. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Isaiah 60, verse 1. And just as Isaiah foretold, Babylon does drag Judah into captivity in 605 B.C. That's a hundred years after Isaiah wrote this chapter of the Bible. Seventy years after that, 70 years, Persia defeats Babylon and allows Judah to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. So within the next 25 years, the temple gets rebuilt and the priesthood revived and the sacrifices reestablished and everything appears like the valleys are being lifted up and the mountains are being made low and the un- uneven ground level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord is about to be revealed. But then, no righteous king seems to be emerging and the throne still sits vacant. Priests give in to practicing corruption. The people slide back into empty religion. And the land persists under, under the rule of foreign empires. Within 300 years of God's comforting and tender words in Isaiah 40, within 300 words of the text that we read this, this morning, within 300 years of that, For the next 400 years, God goes silent. No new scripture, no new prophets, no Messiah seems to be appearing. So the question becomes, was God unfaithful to his promises to Judah? To answer that question, we must understand that biblical prophecy often unfolds with multiple forms of fulfillment in multiple stages. So in God's wisdom, he often slowly unveils understanding of his plans for his people. It's often gradual and staged in its manner. God means for this slowness, this gradualness to enhance his people's reliance upon him as they wait for him to fulfill his promises. We see through a glass darkly and God's purpose 
is that we might sidle up to him closely in faith and trust him in his timing. Whenever he reveals grand plans through biblical prophecy, God means to encourage his people suffering trials and persecution. God provides us just enough details to foster that deeper yearning in our hearts for his presence. If God always told us exactly what he was going to do next, we'd never need faith. We'd never grow to hold conviction in things unseen, as Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us. Instead, God means for us to sile to him even more closely through fervent prayer and trust. So that we would know him more deeply. In, that we would know him even more deeply than what it would mean for us to know all of his plans. This point bears direct application into our prayer life. Does it not? We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. So when we pray and the Lord seems to delay as we wait, sometimes months, even years, for God to answer our prayers, just remember, beloved, the Lord often withholds our full sight into His plans so that we would turn to Him even more fervently and expectantly in faith and prayer and trust in His perfect timing. My wife and I are uh, praying and hoping to, in the next year, uh, participate in a church plant up in Bedford, Massachusetts and help work in an area that's largely unreached. And every time we make a plan, it seems like some uncertainty gets introduced. So we're in this conversation with you about waiting on the Lord's timing and praying and trusting in what He will reveal by faith step by step. God often fulfills prophecy in multiple stages and at different times, like a trail of breadcrumbs meant to feed our faith gradually. Like the exodus from Egypt, God brought 50,000 Jews out of slavery in Babylon through the desert into their land. Like the Exodus, God established His law through reinstated practices and priestly sacrifices. Like the Exodus, He declared His glory with the completion of His house, the temple in Jerusalem. God indeed fulfilled many promises to Judah that He declared in our passage today. He proved Himself faithful. And then 500 years after Israel laid the capstone on the temple, suddenly, breaking 400 years of silence, a voice cries in the Judean wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. From the literal desert, John the Baptist, the literal voice cried out. He wore a leather belt and garments made from camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey and declared a message of repentance from sins. No longer was Isaiah's prophecy merely poetic or metaphorical. The physical man, John, came as God's literal authentication of his promises in Isaiah 40. And John's ministry served to prepare and rescue God's people, not from physical slavery in a foreign land, but from spiritual slavery to sin that had rendered the pathways of our hearts rough and uneven. The glory, that, the glory of the Lord that John the Baptist foreran was not merely revealed in a 
physical temple made with human hands. No, his call to repentance preceded the way for the living Lord become flesh. The Lord Jesus would give up his body, his holy temple over to destruction so that three days later he could raise it back up. While John did not survive to see this glory of Jesus' resurrection in the flesh, John's work echoed in the preaching of the apostles. As witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, the, the apostles' teaching would bless the world as God's, God promised. All kinds of people from many nations would see the glory of God revealed together through the eyes of faith. And many people from many nations, even today, taste the salvation of, of God through, through Jesus Christ. And still, even more supercharged, more glorious fulfillments of God's promises in Isaiah remain. Even more majestic versions of fulfillment await us. So we also are called to look forward. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. So we look ahead to Jesus' second coming, Jesus' return. And when He returns, the fullest literal, physical, and spiritual extents of all of his promises to the people of God in Isaiah 40 will come to pass. He will completely and finally comfort his people and vindicate our faith. He will turn the globe upside down in judgment and create the new heavens and the new earth in spotless perfection. The wilderness of sin and its co-conspirator death will cease to threaten God's people forever. And the glory of the Lord will shine in the face of of Christ, replacing the light of the sun forever. And all of God's people, from Judah and from Israel and from every tribe, tongue, and nation, will all abide forever in the comfort and tenderness of our God, our Maker, our Husband, our living Word, Christ. So my encouragement to you in these final moments is to meditate and to think and live every day looking by faith, expecting Jesus' coming. Look ahead in faith through the suffering of present trials and receive comfort from God who fulfills His promises because He's going to fulfill the promise of Jesus' return. Gaze forward knowing that the trials and tribulations of this life are but light and temporary compared to our eternal comfort in the presence of God that's coming. Looking ahead to Jesus' return should help us fight sin with renewed vigor as we imagine a, a day, a certain day, where the struggle will be no more. And victory will abound permanently so we're called to encourage each other today, as long as it's called today. Helping each other to resist the devil and his fiery arrows. Walk in confidence, knowing that God will, according to his promises, 
finally and fully destroy spiritual Babylon and her crafty prince, the devil. Here's a cherry on top, as promised. Why should we walk forward in such confidence of faith? Isaiah 40, second half of verse 5. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Very simply, be comforted and strengthened because God keeps His word 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Hebrews 6.18 tells us, by two unchangeable things, that is the indestructible life of Christ and God's immutable word, those are the two things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Because when He speaks, new realities come into being that did not previously exist. So if nothing else, in all the minutes that I've been up here, My encouragement is for you to take great comfort this morning and gird your faith in the promises of God because the mouth of the Lord has spoken them. Will you pray with me? Father, we hear your voice and we want to respond in faith. We thank you for preserving this oracle in Isaiah 40. So that your people who immediately read it might be encouraged. That your people coming out of exile in Babylon might be encouraged. And that we might be encouraged knowing that you fulfilled even more than what they could see at the time by sending your son Jesus. And that we have victory over sin and rescue from sin because of the work that Jesus did on the cross and raising from the dead for our justification. So I pray that just as you called your people in the Old Testament to look forward in faith, that you would warm our hearts to look forward in faith to your coming. And would you send Jesus to come quickly for his glory alone. Amen.